From Cleveland, Ohio, I'm Craig James, and this is Big Audacious Idea, the show about thinking big and asking the greatest questions of the human experience. We also ponder the future and endeavor to foster abundant thinking during times of uncertainty. Welcome to the show. What if we were all one being, one mind? Well, one could argue we already are. In this episode, we talk about such oneness and a thing called love, what it is, the power of it, and why we need it, especially now. We also explore the science of love and unpack related concepts such as altruism and compassion. Synchronicity has an energy and language all its own. It's there, right in front of us. It's with us. We just need to accept it, see it, feel it, and experience it. Oh yes, indeed we can tune into the probabilities of the universe. We have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Stephen Post, founder and president of the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. Love is his work, and he has countless works and efforts, including compassionate care for Alzheimer's patients. He has a book, and that book is called God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. So, Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Craig. It's a delight to be with you again. And a delight to have you. And we were just chatting as we were assembling here about the book and some things happening around the book. And you mentioned a word, synchronicity. Let's just go there. Well, that's good because this book is entirely about synchronicity. Uh, It's not a memoir. It's a series of episodes when I have felt this uncanny moment of connectedness in life, and it went far beyond what I would think of as probable. It was so perfect. It was so set up. And it was so cherishing that it felt like the work of a loving energy in the universe, call it what you will, a source, a supreme being, doesn't really matter to me, but absolutely. And and I have some wonderful stories that begin when I was just a 15-year-old kid and have followed me all my life up and down Route 80 from New York to San Francisco to Chicago to Cleveland to you name it. So what's interesting is this kind of energy, this voice from the universe or all that is, or whatever term an individual might use, we can sense it if we open our receptors to it. So I have two questions for you. One is how do we tune into this thing called synchronicity? And it's just quite timely. There's another S word, and that is serendipity. One of our guests, Valdis Krebs, talked about human connectedness in terms of human networks from a technology standpoint, and he used the term serendipity quite a bit. How is serendipity and synchronicity one and the same or different? Well, I think there's a difference. Synchronicity was first defined by Carl Jung, the psychologist. In fact, he wrote a book called Synchronicity. And he gave an example of how he was sitting in his clinical office with a woman, a patient who was in need, but they were making no progress therapeutically. So she began to talk about a dream she'd had the night before of an incredibly rare Northern European beetle, a silver beetle that no one ever saw. And just as she was recounting this dream to Carl Jung, they heard a little tap, tap, tap on the window pane. 
and he turned his chair around and he looked and there was this silver beetle. And he put it in the palm of his hand and he spun around and he gave it to her and she was just completely overwhelmed, felt that this was somehow the work of a divine cherishing love that was much deeper than anything we really can describe or pretend to define. And from that point on, their therapeutic relationship was fantastic. And so that's what he meant. He called it uncaused causality, which is a really interesting thing. It's not normal cause and effect. It's just the sense that somehow or another, there's a deeper causality in our lives. And it's because he was a, an idealist in terms of his view of the mind. The mind wasn't just brain, tissue, cells, matter. But he believed, uh, as many have, including Einstein, that mind was before matter, that mind isn't derived from matter, but vice versa. So our minds are all part of one mind, of a, of a whole mind that permeates the universe. And even though we have our individuality, we can also at times connect in moments of extraordinary creativity, like Raman Nujan, the Indian physicist who knew infinity from the time he was 14 without ever taking a math class. And his two notebooks are at the center of Trinity College Library in Cambridge, and they're the beginning point of quantum physics. And so there are all these experiences that people have, creative experiences, premonitional experiences, dreamy type experiences, experiences of meeting just the perfect person at the perfect time who's so perfect that you know somehow this was not just arbitrary, not just a matter of luck, if you will, but it was a matter of some sort of deeper rhythm in the universe that almost invades our lives. I'm going to be careful with this because this shows about you, not me, but I have to go here. When we talk about love and oneness, I'd like to share an experience of a woman named Mara Gleason. And she wrote a book, I think it's called Everything Changes in a Moment. And she tells in her book at the outset that she was a college student at the time. She tells the story of she was with her two girlfriends and they were in Argentina, I think. And they were having fun, going to bars, and they went down the wrong alley. And suddenly it's dark and scary. And guys on motorcycles came up and they're her girlfriends run away. She tried to get away. She couldn't get away. Next thing she knew, she was on the ground on concrete, feels cold metal to her forehead, a gun to her head. And evidently how the story goes is, is that in the middle of this fear and terror, she looked up at the sky and she saw trees and clouds. And she said in that moment of terror, she actually felt unconditional love for this person who was threatening her life. And she got up and had the strength to push his gun away and said to the man, I know you're afraid and I am too. And she said she felt connected to everything. She felt overwhelming love. The guy got on his motorcycle. He went away. She started walking away. And then all reality started to come back to her and she started running and she couldn't believe what just happened. And it changed her entire life. It, it, it's incredible, the power of love when you think there's fear, hate, and harm, yet she felt love. Yes. And so if you look at the studies, something like 80% of people in America will tell you that at some point in their lives, they've had an experience like that. 
they often use the term invaded. It's as though somehow this energy came into their experience, not from them, but from outside them. And it was perfect, pure love. Example, I'm in my medical school office at Stony Brook, and a lot of students come in here occasionally just to get a little counseling. I had a Korean-American uh, student from Queens, wonderful young lady, who was having doubts about being here because she didn't feel that she was fitting in and she wanted to take a year off. It was just a hard connection for her because she came from a relatively poor background and a lot of her colleagues here were more upper crust. And so it was just a struggle. And she was also a, a kind of a street evangelical Northern Boulevard Korean Christian, you know. <laughs> so that, I mean, she said she wanted to talk with me, and so I said, "Well, maybe you could email me, and we could set up an appointment later in the week because I've got a lot of things going on today." And then suddenly, I was right here in this desk, and I felt this incredible energy. It wasn't visible to the eye, but an incredible energy over my right shoulder, and it was just this warmth of love and. All I could think as I experienced this was, I need to cancel my appointments for the day and just pay attention to this young woman, which I did. And I asked her, "Did you feel some kind of energy coming into the room?" And she had felt it too. And it wasn't something that we thought was intrinsic. It was just somehow there. It was an energy, and we couldn't explain it. And so I became her mentor. She did take a year off. My wife and I would go into Queens and take her out to lunch at a Korean restaurant. She did a wonderful writing project on compassionate care for difficult patients, which won an award. I actually am performing a wedding、oh、on her behalf next summer. It should have been done this summer, but the COVID broke in.、Mm. So people have those experiences, and when you ask Americans, we did a survey which came out in a book with Oxford of 5,000 Americans. We asked them, "Have you ever experienced divine love? However you want to define it, the source—it doesn't matter to me." And 80% said that they had, and almost all of them said primarily through others, just through these incredible encounters and events, where their own ego was gone and they were one with another person, and they felt that somehow it all had to happen. It was happening the way it was ordained to happen. So what's interesting about this is, first of all, not what I'm thinking, but what I'm feeling. Just listening to you, and a friend of mine once said, "You know, listen to what people are feeling, not necessarily what they're saying." I think sometimes words are just not capable of describing certain things. That said, this is how we communicate, and I'd be interested, and perhaps our listeners would be interested, to understand the words of love, or compassion, or altruism. Once again, are these Different things, and how do we define them? And maybe the headiest question of all is: Let's start with love. What is love? Great question, and a lot of people immediately go to some archaic language—Greek, Latin, you name it. <laughs> I don't. I'm a U of Chicago product, and I borrow from a psychiatrist there, who's now long since deceased. And he said, when the happiness And the security of another is as real and meaningful to you as your own, or possibly more so. You love that person. So I'll say that one more time, because it says a lot. 
when the happiness and security of another is as real and meaningful to you as your own, or possibly more so, you love that person. Think about it. You're looking over the crib of a child. You're sitting with an old friend who's had a hard time at Starbucks having a cup of coffee and you're being attentive and listening carefully. You're Cicely Saunders starting the hospice movement, just loving from six in the morning until midnight being with people who are dying. It explains all these deep experiences where we're somehow transported out of chronological time and we're completely mindful of the person who we're with and their reality, their being is what's deepest. I'm an Episcopalian, but I have some very deep Hindu roots as well. And I would say that, you know, Martin Buber said, well, there's I, it, I relate to other people because they fulfill my little agendas. Not very impressive. There's I, thou, I relate to other people because I view them as ends in themselves and I honor that. But there's still a separation. Then there's what the Hindus call I, I, that in a certain sense, when we're with a person in this feeling of being beyond time and place, we are one. We have a oneness. And that's, that's the deepest kind of love. But that's a spiritual take. And there are other forms of love that are less so. We can talk about altruism. We can talk about compassion. We can talk about a lot of things. We can talk about role altruism, the fellow who jumped off the subway platform in New York 12 years ago to save the investor who'd fallen on the tracks and the train was coming. He left his two little kids right there on the platform. They were five and six years old. He jumped over this guy's body and lo and behold, they were in a little gully. The train ran over them. They were okay. And afterwards, the reporters asked him, so what made you do that? And he said, well, you know, I was in the Navy and that's what we do. So that's role altruism. That's a little different. So these things take different textures and they're granular. And it's not always this sort of synchronicity thing or premonitional thing, but a lot of it's just every day. You know, a mother's love is probably the most unconditional and deepest and constant and purest love we have in human experience. So let's say one says to oneself, you know, this love stuff sounds pretty good. I want to be lover-er, <laughs> better at. Does one say, okay, I'm going to try this, do that. Here's how I'm going to turn on my love energy. Or is it more something that just arrives and you allow? Like, how does one become more loving? An awful lot of it has to do with our experience as children. People who have adverse childhood experiences are sometimes quite hurt internally, and it's hard for them to be authentically caring and loving, at least as described by their peers. There's a saying, hurt people hurt people. That's fairly true. And yet, it's also the case that some of these adverse experiences are not determinative. So a lot of literature has been written on this. And if people have the right non-parent mentor, if they get into the right, say, spiritual community or the right school situation, or they marry the right person, you know, who's empathic and compassionate, they can move into this space. I wrote a book called Why Good Things Happen to Good People back in the day, which was basically a Cleveland book uh, that uh, Random House did. 
uh, how to live a healthier, happier life with a simple act of giving. When you simply get your mind off the self and the problems of the self and spend a few hours a week contributing to the lives of other people through volunteering or something less formal, our study, which was published by United Health, it was Again, 5,000 people across the United States randomly selected. Did you volunteer in 2009? We did this at the end of 2010 when I'd first gotten here. So it turns out that 41% of Americans had volunteered on average 100 hours a year, which is, you know, break it down a couple hours a week. And we asked them, did this make you feel happier? 90% said made them feel happier. Did it make you feel better able to deal with disappointment and loss? 88% said yes. This was published in the New England Journal. Did it make you feel more resilient? Yes. And did it, in fact, make you feel that you had better relationships? Most people said yes. Did it make you feel physically healthier? 68% of people said, yeah, I felt more robust, more energized, and it, it hung around with me. So now, you know, we're actually working on a big project with Harvard on uh, recommending, or what's called now social prescribing, in the clinical settings that clinicians actually recommend volunteering to patients, especially adolescents who are in some state of malaise or depression, older adults and so forth. And the studies are very, very strong in this. So that's my next big adventure. My goodness. Now you spouted there a lot of statistics right off the top of your head. So I don't think you were making numbers up. I think you think in terms of both the science and data of love, as well as this intrinsic part that we've been discussing. Tell us about sort of the science of it. And maybe this helps us understand when you say the we, are we speaking to the Institute? And what is the Institute and what does it do? The numbers matter because people like to have a little science behind things. What's so interesting is that, and this we've shown, is that when people help others. And even if it's not wholehearted, if it's a little grudging, if they're a little reluctant, maybe they're doing service-based learning as an adolescent. A third of adolescents just take to this like a duck to water. It's their whole selves. It's their heart. It's just, just something they do that it comes natural. And then there's another third who are kind of slow to take to it, but pretty soon the light catches on. They have a good role model, They're doing something that they really find engaging. And suddenly, oh my goodness, they're even more eager to learn. And they're doing better in school, which we've shown, because they have something to learn for besides me, myself, and I. And then there's that lagging third. They don't really get very far, but maybe later in life, they'll have a little midlife crisis or whatever it is, and they'll they'll come around. But absolutely, I mean, the science is important, and the Institute has funded oh, about 80 studies around the country and and somewhat around the world with all kinds of wonderful universities and organizations and tried to study love in every way that we can. We actually had that first meeting at Glidden House in in University Circle with Kathy Lewis and John Lewis and Dick Watson and Judy Watson and a bunch of Clevelanders who were really behind the Institute at the outset. And we decided that they were, we were going to fund these set of studies that were very carefully reviewed. So we take science seriously, but it's not all science because in the end, for me, it really is about human transformation. You know, I don't think about love in strictly human terms. John Templeton, who was my great benefactor and mentor, I was sitting at Case Med School and I got a facts from Sir John in 2000. So Stephen, I want you to start an institute that 
studies the greatest assets that we have, love. And I fax back, Sir John, let's do it. What should we call it? And he faxed back <laughs> the Institute for Research on Pure Unlimited Love. And I, you know, I, I was okay, except I was hanging around a lot of Alzheimer's geneticists and so forth. I wasn't sure they were all going to buy into this. So I faxed back, Sir John, maybe we should call it the Institute for Creative Altruism because altruism is a more accepted sciencey term. And Sir John faxed back, no, Stephen, unlimited love up to $8.9 million. And I faxed back, great name. I, I said, I said, Sir John, I love this language. It jumps right off the page. <laughs> you know, we've just had a great time. And I put an advertisement in the Chronicle of Higher Education for social scientists who wanted to start teaching courses on spirituality and love. This guy from the University of Akron, Matt Lee, who was the head of the department, he was about 38 at the time. He was a criminologist. He responds. He starts teaching a course. We gave him $5,000. Suddenly, it's in the Akron Beacon Journal. He becomes a member of my board. And three years ago, after a six-page letter that I wrote for Matt, he is now the director of empirical research on generativity, flourishing, and love at Harvard University. The first person ever to go from the University of Akron to Harvard. And he just won a course teaching the sociology of love. So we've had so many people, hundreds of people with the Institute, and they've all done beautiful things. And it's a Cleveland enterprise originally, and, and my heart is still in Cleveland. Amazing things do start and happen and continue to happen here in good old Cleveland, Ohio. And as we look toward the future and we round out our discussion, you know, there's always going to be challenges as a human experience. And whether we're still in pandemic or post-pandemic and all the things happening, social unrest, there's always going to be these struggles. You know, how can we or do we leverage the power of love to address some of these things as we look toward the future? Well, love is the only human destiny that will work. And I mean that in terms of something that is necessary, almost decreed from the beginning of evolution. We have to get to this omega point and we will get there. There will be many, many obstacles, but every obstacle is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to be more mindful, to be more focused, to be more creative, to make it happen. I do believe that here on earth, God's work is, is truly our own. I do believe in a source, a higher being, but it can't do everything. So it's really up to us. Sir John always said we need to remind ourselves how little we know and we need to be eager to learn. And he was so concerned about arrogance, religious arrogance, political arrogance, arrogance in the culture. He so much felt that that was hurting the future of humanity when people think, I have the entire truth and no one else matters, so I can dehumanize them, I can demonize them, I can de-dignify them, and then who knows, maybe I can eliminate them. And there's too much of the spirit of elimination going on right now in our culture, around the world, and we need the right kind of oneness. What we have right now is the wrong kind of oneness. It's the oneness that says, okay, you're different than I am, so I'm going to eliminate you and possibly your whole lineage 
<laughs> and all of your future. And what we need is the true oneness, the oneness that says, you know what, just purely logically, the differences between us are very inconsequential and indefensible at a moral level. So we need to get back to a shared humanity, a sense of a common humanity, and realize how interconnected and how interdependent we are, which is what Martin Luther King said, of course. But, you know, if you look at it from the more Hindu Buddhist perspective, it's also a kind of a metaphysical statement. But however it goes, we have to get to oneness and love is the way and love is the key and love is the hope. Since I was 15, early in the morning, five o'clock, I'm up meditating. I ask myself, who am I going to encounter today? And what form of love do they need? Is it compassion? Is it creativity? Is it what Scotty Peck and I coined? We actually wrote an article about this, carefrontation, okay, instead of confrontation. What do they need? And I try to go through the day. Some people need a little bit of loyalty because they've had a loss of a loved one who's gone away. So I'm always trying to be focused and it's worked my entire life long and it can work for anybody. There's nothing special about it. You know, I was happy, I was showing you earlier, I just got this nice letter August 1st from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who somehow got a copy of God and Love on Route 80. And he says how pleased he is with it and he thinks it's a book that can contribute to a flourishing humanity. So it's all about Cleveland. It's about <laughs> it's about people your listeners will have known from Fred Robbins to Joe Foley. It's all there. Such a perfect segue. We love to, at the end of each discussion, ask our guests, what would we challenge our listeners to do or think? And you naturally went right there through your example and sharing what you do each and every day. Your discussion around love is so loving in its execution. And I can feel your energy and love and your kindness and the intonations and the smile on your face. And I'm just so grateful personally uh, to have this opportunity to reconnect with you. And I'm grateful to be able to share your wisdom and insight with our listeners. Uh, Stephen, thanks so much for joining the show. And thank you, Craig. And thanks to Cleveland. This is Big Audacious Idea. You've been listening to Dr. Stephen Post. Thanks for listening. How do we know when we're truly loving? Well, when the well-being and happiness of another person is as meaningful or even more so than your own, that's love. We can transport ourselves out of time and space when we love another person and we place ourselves in their reality. In fact, Dr. Post helped us see that love is the only human destiny that will work. I'm Craig James, your host, and you've been listening to Big Audacious Idea, the show that invites you to think big. Let us know what you thought about our chat with Dr. Post by tweeting me at cjamescatstrat. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, please rate us and review us in your favorite podcast app. It helps a lot. Big Audacious Idea is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Learn more about our podcasts at evergreenpodcasts.com. I'd like to extend special thanks to our producer and audio engineer, William Pritz, production director, Bridget Coyne, and my co-executive producer, Michael D'Aloya. Thanks for listening. Until next time, don't just think audacious, be audacious.
Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.